in search of a brawny woodsman to save her. In the season of epiphany in the church calendar, we are not making discoveries about moons or geriatric posing wolves. We are making discoveries about the identity of a person, the baby whose birth we eagerly anticipated for 40 days and then celebrated for almost another two weeks. We are making discoveries about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We are merely again asking the question that we sang numerous times during Christmas, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? And in the season of Epiphany, we are looking and searching for a fuller answer to that question. Who is this Jesus? And as we answer this question during the season of Epiphany, I pray there will be a number of epiphanies along the way that produce change in our lives and inform the ways we view the world and live and move and have our being. And this morning we are pursuing an epiphany by way of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a mysterious character. He was an echo of the past, living and acting in ways that made people wonder who he was and what he was all about. For instance, perhaps you have heard of John the Baptist living as an echo of the prophet Elijah. Elijah was one of the great prophets of Israel. And tradition holds that God even spared Elijah from death, taking him up to heaven before he suffered that fate shared by all of humanity. Elijah is up there with Moses. It's Elijah who appears with Moses at at Jesus' transfiguration. And in the first chapter of 2 Kings, we get a description of Elijah's appearance that should sound familiar to you after our New Testament reading from the Gospel of Mark this morning. In that chapter, the king of Israel inquired about the kind of man that Elijah was. And he was told this, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Sound familiar? It should, because in verse 6 of of Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist is introduced, and Mark tells us that John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt about his waist. John the Baptist was intentionally dressing like the prophet Elijah, and the people around him picked up on this not-so-subtle illusion, even at one point asking him, Are you Elijah? Thinking that perhaps John was Elijah having come back to life. Now, why John dressed like Elijah and the significance of this is, is for us the content of another sermon another day. But what I'm trying to establish with you is that John the Baptist was conscientiously acting in ways that created echoes of the past. It was obvious that John was an echo of Elijah. And it's important to establish with you John's obvious and intentional echoing of Elijah because less obvious, but still very much present in the text, is John's echo of Joshua. And it is in Joshua where we will find our epiphany. And first, let's talk about Joshua. Who was he? Why is he significant? He has an entire book of the Bible bearing his name, so he must be somebody. In the third and fourth chapters of that book bearing his name, from whence our Old Testament passage for this morning was read, we learn that one of Joshua's crowning achievements was that he, not Moses, led the Israelites into the Promised Land. This was a momentous occasion in the history of Israel. 
And it was Joshua who led the charge. It was a moment of arrival, a time of fulfillment. God had promised this land to Abraham hundreds of years ago, and Israel had been refugees, wanderers, and slaves in the time in between. The idea, let alone the reality, of having a country to call their own was peace and rest to their minds. That land held implications for the identity of this people and the way they thought of themselves. It was much more than just dirt and rocks under their feet. Stefan Zweig was an Austrian novelist, playwright, and journalist, but perhaps the most significant fact about him when living in Vienna in the early 1930s was that he was Jewish. And being Jewish in Austria at a time when Hitler was rising to power in Germany was not a safe thing to be. So he and his wife fled their beloved Austria for England, then America, and finally Brazil. Zweig wrote a memoir in this latter part of his life wherein he explores the psychological impact of living as a refugee. He writes, Every form of emigration inevitably of its nature tends to upset your equilibrium. You lose, and this too has to be experienced to be understood. You lose something of your upright bearing if you no longer have the soil of your own land beneath your feet. You feel less confident, more distrustful of yourself. And I do not hesitate to confess that since the day when I first had to live with papers or passports essentially foreign to me, I have not felt that I entirely belong to myself anymore. Something of my natural identity has been destroyed forever with my original real self. I have become less outgoing than really suits me. And today I, the former cosmopolitan, keep feeling as if I had to offer special thanks for every breath of air that I take in a foreign country. And in a letter that Zweig wrote to a fellow author, he writes, My inner crisis consists in that I am not able to identify myself with the me of passport, the self of exile. And indeed, he was unable to do so. And so he and his wife laid down next to each other one last time in the foreign country of Brazil, and while holding hands, each took a lethal dose of a sleeping pill that put an end to their lives of exile on the earth. This is the existential angst of the life of a refugee. And it would have been exactly what the Israelites had experienced for hundreds of years. And the promised land was going to be the place where they could finally find themselves, where their souls could rest. And it was Joshua whom God chose to lead them into this land. He was a hero because of the land into which he would lead the people. And our Old Testament passage tells the story of Israel passing into this promised land, latent with so much hope and expectation. The geographic route of this journey is significant for our purposes this morning. Their passage began in the wilderness, where the previous generation had wandered about and died. And it led through the waters of the Jordan River into the promised land. In dramatic fashion, hearkening back to the crossing of the Red Sea on the way out of Egypt, the waters of the Jordan River were kept from running and were piled up together so that 
a dry strip of riverbed formed for the people to walk through the water and cross into the land, their land, which God was giving them. They were coming into being. They were being welcomed home. It was a journey of such significance that while the waters were still piled up, the people set up as monuments twelve large pillars of stone on the dry riverbed that could still be seen once the waters returned to their natural position. So that for generations to come, children would be prompted to inquire how those stones got there. And from generation to generation, parents would pass on the story of how God had compassion on them in their, in their exile, and in His grace, saved them from the equilibrium-upsetting exile and put the soil of their own land beneath their feet. But despite possessing a land to call their own, they soon discovered that a physical land didn't end their search for identity and meaning in this world. Still their hearts wandered, and still their souls were restless. This is a restlessness that is common to all of humanity, a trait that you and I share with the ancients. We should be satisfied, and yet we're strangely not. At first they didn't know it, but what they were looking for was not just a place to call home, but for a person to welcome them home. Through all of this journey, they came to realize that there's a relational component to home. Home is not just a place, but it's a person as well. And not just any person, but a person who knows you intimately and yet loves you just the same. Any person who has visited their childhood home after their parents have moved away and strangers have taken up residence in the once familiar rooms can tell you that home is, not, is just not the same without the people you love. It loses its warmth, becomes a shelter. Whether they initially knew it or not, the Israelites were looking for more than just shelter and protection. But in the wanderings of their heart, they searched for love in all the wrong places and from all the wrong people. And the ironic result was that in their search for love, they ended up losing their land. In their search for home, the Israelites ironically ended up in exile again. First in Assyria and Babylon, and finally in Persia, because they rejected the welcome of the only one who could give rest to their souls. They rejected God. And eventually they did return to the land, but it was an inglorious return. The pomp and circumstance of their initial entry when Joshua led them from the wilderness through the waters of the Jordan was absent. Under great oppression and threat, they built up the walls of Jerusalem and constructed a temple, but it was so pathetic compared to Solomon's temple that it made the people weep at the sight of it. And then the Romans moved in, and even though the Israelites had their land under their feet, it was as if they were paying rent to live in a house they once owned. It was insulting, degrading, and all the while their souls still strangely itched for home. And it was in this environment that John the Baptist, a man conscientiously creating echoes of the past, began his ministry. And where did John choose to set up shop? But in the wilderness, of course. On the banks of the Jordan River, opposite the Promised Land. 
He had positioned himself in the same exact position that Joshua once stood as the Israelites prepared to enter the land hundreds of years before him. And in our New Testament passage, we read that people were leaving the land to go out to John in the wilderness. Verse 5 reads that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. They were leaving the promised land in order to discover what John offered. And what John, the new Joshua, was offering was entrance not into a land, but into a person. What their hearts had craved all along. And he offers this not just to them, but to you as well. And to your neighbor, and to the refugees living in our land. John was leading people into the water of the Jordan River, just like Joshua did. But through the water that John poured over their heads, they were not entering into a physical land, but into a relationship with a person, a person who knows you more than you know yourself, and yet still loves you anyway. John prepares a people for Jesus through baptism. And by assuming the role of Joshua, John the Baptist is trying to tell us that all the hope and the expectation that the Israelites had about this physical land of Israel has been transferred to Jesus and is fulfilled in Him. So that whether Jew or Gentile, in Jesus, that feeling of restlessness that we all carry deep within our souls can be satisfied in Jesus. We find our identity in Him. In Him, we come into ourselves. Humanity moves all over the country looking for a city that will fit them and suit them. We switch jobs hoping to be fulfilled. The grass is always greener. We think that marriage or kids or even a second marriage will finally set our souls at rest and make us content and satisfied. And John is telling you it absolutely will not. What your soul wants The rest it craves, only Jesus can provide. Through Him all things were created, and in returning to Him alone, our Creator, we find our home, our rest. And if in Jesus we find a sense of belonging, the natural identity that Stefan Zweig craved, then we can be anywhere and yet content. He is a movable land of promise a traveling home, with us wherever we go. In Jesus, we can be far from the city in which we were born and raised, or still living in our childhood home, and our souls can yet be at rest. One author writes, The migrant soul, a stranger in the earthly city, citizen of the heavenly city, lives lightly. Not being at home anywhere, looking for the home that is the refuge of the city of God, the Christian can also, with a kind of sanctified indifference, manage to pitch her tent anywhere. Jesus sets us free from the constant searching that characterizes not only our present culture, but humanity as a whole since the beginning of time. We're set free to be satisfied in the place that God has chosen to place us, the city, the job, the relationships around us. He is our peace so that we can be disappointed with the world and yet remain faithful to Him 
and not overcome by misery and corrupted by constant grumbling. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus knows that we are physical people, physical creatures who desire a physical place to call our own, and he promises to give us one. In the book of Revelation, there is this magnificent picture of Jesus returning to earth, and with him, he brings a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to redeem and restore every tree, every river and lake, every mountain and prairie. He's going to make all things new so that those who are in Jesus will find not only satisfaction in Him, but also for the first time since Eden, a true sense of satisfaction in a physical place. In Jesus, we will regain what the Israelites lost and forfeited in their idolatrous search for a home, even after Joshua brought them into the Promised Land. In Jesus, we will have both the embrace of God welcoming us home and a land under our feet that is incorruptible and unfading. There will be no crisis of identity, for we will be known in Him, and our souls will finally rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.